Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Join me as I interview and promote living composers. In this series of interviews, I talk with composers about their musical journeys, their past successes and setbacks, and their current projects. For more information about this podcast, as well as a complete archive of episodes, please visit sdcompose.com slash movabledoe. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Dr. Loretta Notoreski. Currently a professor of music at Regis University, Loretta received her master's and doctoral degrees from the University of California at Berkeley and the general diploma from the Zotan Kodai Pedagogical Institute of Music in Hungary. Her music has been performed around the world by such ensembles as the Spectral Quartet, the Sacred and Profane Chamber Chorus, and the Boulder Symphony, and classical ukulele players Samantha Muir and Donald Busted. She has received awards and grants from the Cincinnati Camerata, Ironworks Percussion Duo, the American Composers Forum, and the Gala Choruses. Loretta Notoreski, welcome to Movable Dough. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Steve. All right. I wanted to start today with something I saw on your website. Uh, I saw something about uh, Desegni music. Is that how you pronounce that? It's Desegni. Desegni. Okay. So the mm-hmm. Italian pronunciation. Desegni. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you list that as one of the publishers of your music, but if I understand correctly, this is your company, correct? That's right. Yeah. Okay. And do you, uh, do you promote other composers as well or, or is it just solely your music? Um, It's mainly my own music. Although for a brief time, I I did feature the music of a couple of other composers and one of whom I I actually still publish uh, both his original song uh, and my arrangement of it. Uh, That's my former student, Michael Frank. Um, And I thought for a while that I might branch out into other composers, but then I decided that I had enough uh, (laughs) on my hands with my own music. So I didn't want to go into that uh, whole business enterprise. So I just kept it to my own. And where did the name Desegni come from? Um, So Desegni means designs in Italian. And um, my father, before he retired, was a design engineer. And he's Italian, so um, I uh, sort of did that as it took my inspiration from him because I think there's a lot of similarities between um, engineering and design and composition. Uh huh. What what sort of similarities do you see between them? I think just the idea of arranging things carefully, drafting them out, um, making sure that they work in a certain kind of way. I think when we look for things to work musically, we have a very clear kind of musical design in our mind, and that's uh, sort of analogous to making a mechanical design. Oh, I love that. That's a great analogy. So for our interview today, you sent me four very diverse pieces, which I I loved. They were all for different ensembles or players. Uh, We'll have a chance in the second half of the program to actually talk and listen about them. Um, But what I want to know is this, uh, is there any instrument or ensemble type that you really love to compose for, or maybe something you've discovered recently and are currently enjoying writing for? Yeah, I think because I, I sing in choirs and I, I, I used to play the violin and I play piano, I enjoy writing for things that I have a lot of familiarity with. So for choir, for string quartet, for example, for piano, I, I love writing for those. Um, and then also recently, I in the last couple of years, I've kind of had a subspecialty in writing for classical ukulele. And I do play ukulele a little bit. I'm not very accomplished on the ukulele, but I did take some lessons. And that sort of stemmed from a commission that I had to write for classical ukulele. And I, 
I learned quite a bit about the instrument at that time and I thought, well, am I going to stop here or should I write more? So I ended up writing more kind of, uh, especially pieces for the, for the developing beginner, uh, which is what I consider myself to be. And so I enjoyed doing that and getting to know that instrument as well. Well, for those of you out there that have not heard the classical ukulele, you are in for a treat in the second half of our program. It, it's, uh, it's phenomenal uh, sound that I had not been exposed to before. So speaking of your writing, let's go back a little bit further. Um, when did you start writing music? Did you start out on piano? Um, I Well, my first musical experience was with a singing group. Um, okay. When I was really little, I was in a group called the Sunshine Singers uh, in elementary school. But then uh, I started studying piano around age nine. And around that time is when I wrote my first compositions, just very experimentally. Um, and I really didn't start seriously writing music until I was a teenager. Um, and uh, after a while, I, well, when I was a senior in high school, I, I uh, for the first time, had a composition teacher, and that really helped me mm -hmm. get more, um, you know, uh, accomplished. Um, but I did a lot of experimenting. I especially did a lot of improvisation. And yes, that was mainly on the piano, but also on the violin, too. So were you in, in choirs through, throughout high school as well? Actually, I was a, a violinist mainly, so I, I was in orchestras. Okay. Um, I played in my school orchestra, and I also played, I lived in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where Oklahoma State University is, and, and as a high schooler, I played in their orchestra as well, which was um, a great experience. And so um, I did sing in choir when I was in middle school and then a, a senior in high school, and then when I was in college, I was in choir too, and, for, and since then, I've been pretty regularly in choirs. Very nice. So you talk about high school. You and I probably graduated right around the same time. We're about the same age. Uh, so I'm curious, what were you listening to in high school in the early to mid 90s? You know, for me, it was alternative rock, a little bit of classical music. Uh, but what was it for you? Um, I thought it was funny when you I'm glad you sent me that question in advance. because It's kind of <laughs> hard to remember back then. But um, I, I, since I was in orchestra, I listened to a lot of uh, symphonic music, a lot of classical music. I was kind of a classical music nerd, and I would really seek out recordings by composers I loved. And I also remember record like taping things on cassette off of the classical radio station <laughs> oh, yeah. all the time. So I was trying to remember some of my favorites back then. I think Beethoven, Dvorak, Smetna, Bach, Copland, just kind of composers like that. But in terms of popular music, um, I really loved uh, the bands U2 and R.E.M. Um, and then my best friend Monica and I used to listen to um, and, and love the music uh, of, on old LPs, I think that belonged to our parents, of Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, nice. Nice. So thinking of your growing up years, can you think of a, a song, um, one of the first songs that you can remember being impactful for you, either because of the message or maybe it inspired you musically? Um, I think... The first piece of classical music that I really remember falling in love with was Pachelbel's Canon. Um, we played an arrangement of that in my orchestra when I was in sixth grade, and I think it was the first uh, piece of music I bought for myself on recording. I bought it on cassette, and I listened to it um, over and over again, um, and I just, you know, for, for obvious reasons, thought it was really elegant. And, um, but then later, as I played at weddings and so forth, I later became tired of the piece. <laughs> but it had an initial charm for me. Yeah, my, um, and my, it, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, my buddy in high school used to call it the Pink Balloon song because that's all that he thought of when he heard the song was just Pink Balloons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but in terms of popular music, um, I uh, I really loved and memorized uh, the song The Boxer by Simon and Garfunkel. I think I can still sing it today. Um, 
And that, that song is kind of, it's hard to say exactly what the message is. I don't know that it was inspirational so much, but I just found it very beautiful. It has a kind of loneliness in it and regret. And I think I thought it was deep when I was a high schooler. And so I really, I really love that song and appreciate listening to it. Fabulous. Well, thinking, talking about your influences, you have an impressive list of composers who have taught you over the years. Uh, so what are some of the lessons you learned from them that you still feel influencing your writing today? Um, so yeah, that was, that was a great question. I was really thinking, thinking about that. So, um, I had one, my, my, uh, dissertation advisor, uh, my professor in graduate school, Jorge Liederman, he was really very good at helping me be kind of self-aware and realize when maybe I was in too big of a hurry or not necessarily writing the best version of something. And so he would help me think through kind of how to make things better. And that just left me with the feeling of you can always, you know, go back and improve and that you should really kind of be assessing the whole time. Um, and when something is not quite right, you know, kind of figuring out what needs to be changed about it. Um, and then uh, probably from Morton Lords and my, my teacher, one of my teachers in my undergraduate um, I learned the very uh, good lesson of to write singable lines when writing for choir. <laughs> mm. um, you know, as, as we all know, choir singing is very different from playing an instrument. And so just to be very aware of the, the singability of a line. Um, and then from a professor in graduate school, Edmund Campion, um, he would have me listen to, like when I said, oh, I'm interested in doing this kind of electronic piece, he said, okay, here you go. And he handed me a stack of CDs of other composers who were trying to do kind of this, or who had done the same thing I was trying to do. And so just the idea of like listening widely and keeping a good, you know, sense of what others are doing in the same realm of what you're trying to do. So those are some of the lessons I think about. Yeah. I think that's one of the things I've gotten from this podcast is just being able to listen widely to so many different composers styles. I, I think that's great. Mm -hmm. yeah, so in, great. so back in 2016, uh, you were a TEDx mile high speaker. So I watched the presentation, extremely powerful, and we'll have a chance to talk about the subject of that speech when we talk about one of your pieces today. But for now, I just want to sort of talk nuts and bolts. What was that experience like doing a TEDx talk? And how much time did you have to prepare for that? Yeah, the, the TEDx Mile High organization is really well run, um, and they go through a long process with the selected speakers in preparation for the main um, event. So they brought in a couple of speech coaches, and they work with us uh, regularly to, to create the uh, you know an impactful presentation. There was one speech coach in particular named Erin Weed who I thought was really helpful. Um, so she helped me boil down my ideas and, and just kind of speak them in the most direct way. So... Um, uh, in my case, the speech plus the music had to be less than 18 minutes. So since uh, there was about 13 minutes of music or so, um, we made the speech about four and a half minutes, which isn't very long. Um, but it's kind of amazing how much you can structure that amount of time to be really right. focused and direct. And so compare, uh, pre preparing for the presentation was much more like preparing for a musical performance than like writing a piece, um, mm -hmm. although it did involve writing a speech. And so I worked, uh, after I had written the speech, I worked on every detail of the delivery and sort of practiced it for hours. So there's a lot of refinement. I had written an essay before my string quartet um, that in other contexts besides TEDx Mile High, I just read the whole essay, but that was 20 minutes long. So I had to really boil down. <laughs> to, four and half. Wow. <laughs> to four and a half minutes. So 
All right. So one last question before we take a break, just more on the fun side of things this time. What's something that you can do or have done that not many other people can do or have done? Um, well, my, the, the first thing that came to mind is that my, I have a, a very serious hobby of sewing and creating garments, um, which is not something that a lot of people do. So I don't think that's necessarily something that's unique about me, but, but it's not a lot, it's not a lot of other musicians that I know do that. Um, so I, yeah, I'm quite serious about this hobby. So I'm always taking online classes and developing my skills and, and I'm a little bit obsessed with it and can kind of go on about it for hours if you let me. So <laughs> Did you so, make sewing, the, yes, did so. you make what you're wearing today? I did actually make this shirt. Yep. <laughs> that is fabulous. And you, you, I assume you make clothes for your family as well. And... Uh, yeah, I have made clothes for my husband and my daughter Yep, and my, my mom and dad too. That is fabulous. Uh, this was a skill that I wish I did have. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So after a quick break, we will come back and we'll listen to some of Loretta's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Dr. Loretta Notoreski. So let's start today with evocations. This piece was written for classical ukulele, which I have to admit, I didn't even know was a thing before you, you sent me the, uh, the recording of it. It's absolutely gorgeous to listen to. So you write on your website that you chose the title evocation because the piece evokes different moods and characters from moment to moment, all within the intimate world of a soloist. So I wonder if you could describe some the, some of the moods that you were evoking and what are some of the challenges or opportunities you discovered while writing for the ukulele? Yeah, so um, some of the moods that I was evoking are, it's very, the big piece begins and ends very introspectively um, and very uh, sort of sort of chord by chord, sort of savoring each moment of the sound. Um, but uh, another uh, uh, type of style I was evoking was a kind of a flamenco guitar kind of style. So I asked for what's called rasqueado, which is a flicking of the fingers on the strings. Um, and it's kind of a percussive roll. Um, and so I was sort of evoking that style. I wasn't exactly imitating it directly, but just bringing in some of the sound of that. Mm -hmm. um, and then uh, the what I learned about writing for ukulele is, um, well, and one of the main reasons I, um, I had to sort of take lessons to understand it is the, the tuning of the instrument is nonlinear. It's what's, what is called re-entrant tuning. So on a standard tuned uh, ukulele, there's a G4 and then it goes down to C4 and then up from there to E4 and A4. And so the fact that the lowest string, quote unquote, is not actually the lowest pitch, um, really is a mind bender <laughs> when you're writing for the instrument and trying to conceive of it. So it's, it's, to me, it was really crucial to write with the instrument in hand and to try to make sure that all the fingerings are really idiomatic. Um, and so, uh, you know, so from the get go, when I first wrote for the instrument, I had to kind of, you know, learn that and adapt my, my thinking to that. And were you working in collaboration with Samantha Muir? Because that's who you wrote this for, right? Yes, I was. So um, I had, uh, she had played some of my other compositions and um, had promoted them on her website. And um, and I said, you know, thank you so much. You know, basically I owe you. <laughs> and she's like, well, why don't you write me a piece? Uh, and so I did write this for her. And um, I think I shared some drafts with her early on. And she, and we talked about, actually, I started with the, the tremolo in the beginning. I started actually 
initially I wrote that as a drum as a drumming on the body of the instrument, which sounds really nice when the instrument is amplified. Um, but it wasn't coming through very effectively, she thought, when she was playing it. So we changed it to a tremolo on the string, and I actually like that a lot better. So there was some kind of back and forth between us in terms of shaping the, how the piece ended up. Very cool. All right. Well, we're going to take a moment here. We're going to listen to Evocations, uh, performed here by Donald Boosted.
All right, next, let's talk about Formed of Joy and Mirth for solo piano. So this piece was a commission by pianist Janine Jones, was inspired by the poem by William Blake, The Angel That Presided or by Birth, said, Little creature formed of joy and mirth, go love without the help of anything on earth. So how did you go about writing a work that captured the essence of this poem without, of course, including the words? Yeah, I was really intrigued by this poem. So Janine wanted me to write a piece based on that poem. And so I uh, I thought it was a little inscrutable when I first read it. So I sort of asked her what she thought about it. And she had this really beautiful explanation of how she thought it was about sort of that, that, that joy uh, is always present in the universe. And all you have to do is sort of reach your hand down into this stream of constant joy and to be inspired and to, to feel joyous. And so... Um, so I thought about I thought about sort of musically painting the word joy and also painting the word mirth. Uh, and so I thought about laughter with mirth and with joy. I thought about that stream of joy she was talking about. So the stream of music is kind of a constant um, uh, sort of trill type pattern in the piano. And the mirth is different laughing gestures. So I have sort of like a ha 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 and a hee 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 <laughs> um, uh, little little laughing sounds. And I sort of played with those two ideas and put them together, juxtapose them in different ways throughout the piece. Yeah, I love the the uh, the quote from Janine. I read what she wrote that you included on your website. Uh, she said, there's no original sin, there's only original joy, which always was and always will be. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a, a great uh, a way, to, way to look at joy. Mm -hmm. So we are going to listen to Formed of Joy and Mirth, here performed by William Harned.
Our third piece today is So Live for SATB Chorus, though I understand that it was originally written for Women's Chorus, correct? That's right, yeah. Okay. So the piece is a tribute to all loved ones that we have lost, but was written in memory of someone in particular. Uh, can you tell us about her and about writing this piece? Yeah, so her name was Emily Mannion uh, Robkin, I think is how you say her last name. Um, and Emily was someone I knew sort of more as an acquaintance. Um, she had been, before I came to Regis, the very first music major at Regis University. Um, in fact, she's like the reason we have the music major because she got a petition together and um, demanded one from the administration. Um, and uh, so, and then later uh, she came back to Regis to get a master's degree and I uh, knew her by singing in choirs with her and sort of casually acquainted with her. Um, but the reason I was so moved by her death is because she was suffering from um, maternal mental illness. She was um, uh, pregnant at the time and she also had a one-year-old and she took her own life, sadly. Um, she was suffering a great deal, um, probably from postpartum depression and also from a condition, I can't remember the name of it, but it's the one where you basically are very, very sick throughout your pregnancy. She was also not getting enough sleep. Um, this is this is all uh, things that I understood later from her parents. Um, and so she was, she was suffering quite a bit, took her own life. Um, and as we might talk about later with my shrink quartet OCD, I also had a very difficult time postpartum. Um, in my case, it was obsessive compulsive disorder, which is different, I think, from what she had, but still a very difficult situation to be in. And um, when I looked into it, I found that suicide is actually the second leading cause of death following childbirth uh, for new mothers, which was an astonishing statistic to me. So. So I was just, you know, it was one of those things where I thought, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, and and I, um, I really, um, I had this commission from the Sephonia Women's Choir to write a piece, and so, in the in the hours after I found out about her death, I I wrote this poem, um, and then set it to music very very quickly, um, and then ended up, you know, editing that and turning that into the piece. So, it was a very um, something that I was a situation I was very moved by. We're going to listen now to a performance of So Live, performed by the Regis University Concert Choir, uh, Kyle Fleming Conductor.
And lastly today, let's talk about your string quartet OCD. This piece was featured as part of your TEDx talk in 2016, and I know it deals with a rather sensitive subject, postpartum OCD. So would you share with us, first of all, what postpartum OCD is for those that haven't watched your talk yet? And secondly, how your experience with the disease inspired this piece? Yes, and thank you for asking this question. One of the main reasons I wrote the piece uh, was to have a kind of educational component um, because postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder is not a very well known or understood um, disease. Um, and so uh, the first thing we need to know is that there's a very pop culture understanding of OCD, which really doesn't bear much relationship to the reality of the disease. It's, it's a disease about fear. Um, it's not about being persnickety, which is um, what a lot of people think about OCD. But basically, uh, the person who has um, obsessive compulsive disorder suffers from a lot of intrusive thoughts, and these are scary or dangerous, sort of dreadful thoughts that come into your mind that you are um, ashamed of, scared of. In my case, they involved a lot of violence, uh, imaginary violence against my daughter and, and against myself. Um, and um, one of the things that distinguishes OCD from, say, postpartum psychosis is that the person with OCD knows that their thoughts are wrong, um, feels a lot of shame and a lot of fear, and so you're very self-aware, but at the same time, you sort of can't stop having the thoughts. And the compulsions come in as a response to the thoughts, so where you start to do ritualistic behaviors um, in order to try to control the thoughts. And in my case, a lot of my rituals were sort of mental and verbal and musical. So I had a lot of patterns that I required myself to repeat um, to try to control the thoughts. And I know it sounds quite strange to someone who's never gone through it. It's like, why would you do that? But there's a kind of weird logic to it when you have OCD in it. And um, so, Good news is I got a lot of help right away. I got um, some good therapy and some good medication that helped me um, manage the disease. And I it receded after about one year. So I was lucky that um, I don't suffer from OCD anymore. Um, some of that anxiety from that time I still have, but not the actual um, obsessions and compulsions. And how old is your daughter now? She's eight. She's eight now. Mm -hmm. That's fantastic. And her name is Ruby, right? Ruby. Yeah. I, I have a Ruby as well. Oh, how funny. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, uh, if you listen to Loretta's TEDx talk uh, from 2016, uh, you'll hear the third and fourth movement from the string quartet OCD. Uh, today, we are going to listen to the uh, third movement, Shame, performed here by the Playground String Quartet.
All right. Well, Loretta, what are you working on now that you can tell us about? I am working on a series of short piano pieces. I don't know whether they're going to be preludes or etudes or some other name, <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're they're short sort of idiomatic pieces for the piano, um, each one with a different character. I've written six so far, and uh, that's sort of my summer project. So I'm planning on working that for uh, working on that for the next couple of months. Um, and yeah, they're they're partly for me to play, but they are dedicated to Steve Beck, who's a pianist in New York. Okay. Are they inspired by anything in particular or just things that are sort of coming out? Or? Yeah, they're not, they're not programmatic. Uh, mm -hmm. Actually, what, what, I've, what I've been inspired by is just um, making pleasant shapes in the hand on the piano and just kind of choosing a nice shape and then doing an ostinato based on that. So I thought about maybe naming the piece the ostinato etudes or pre, sorry, ostinato preludes, but then I discovered that Bill Evans has a piece by that name. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought, oh, maybe I shouldn't use that title, but that is really what they are is they're kind of ostinato based on these nice figurations in uh -huh. the hand. Well, we will look forward to those. So if my listeners want to know more about you, where can they find you online? Your website, social media? Um, yeah, I, I have a website, LorettaNodoreski.com, and um, my uh, I'm on Facebook under my name as well as on Instagram, although on Instagram, it's more of a sewing page. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do put some of my music on Instagram, but it's primarily a, a, an outlet for sewing, and that's Loretta underscore composer underscore sewist. Sewist. All right. Well, hey, listeners out there, if you are looking for a way to help support this show, please go on iTunes and leave a rating and a review, preferably a good one. This helps the algorithms get the podcast out in front of more people. And if you are wary of typing reviews, then please leave me one of your favorite recipes in the comments, and that will still help the algorithm. And hey, I might get to try something new. So Loretta, thank you so much for joining me today on Movable Dough. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. It was a pleasure talking with you. You too. My guest today was composer Loretta Nodoreski. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving. <laughs>